0: Welcome to Worship with Dawson Memorial Baptist Church. At Dawson, we seek to be found faithful as God's people as we become and help others become faithful servants of Jesus Christ. Now join us as we worship God through the teaching of His Word in today's message. Church, as we continue to worship, would you take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6 this morning? We're turning to 2 Samuel chapter 6, because last week we were in 2 Samuel chapter 5, and we're continuing through the life of King David, the rise and the fall of the second king of Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 6 is our guide this very morning. I have a feeling that many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis' Cherished Children's Series. The first book that was written, and that was called The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and a very famous scene. And that is where the four um, Pevensie children are before the characters, Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Lucy is having a conversation because for the first time that she realizes that Aslan, Aslan is the king of Narnia, and Lewis's symbolism represents Jesus. And so, Lucy is inquiring about what it means that that Aslan is a lion. And for the first time, she's, she's terrified of the idea of standing before Aslan. So she says, oh, I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I shall rather feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Of course he isn't safe but he is good. Safe, no. But he's the king. It's an apt description of who God is. It's an apt description of how distinct God is from us in his holiness and perfection. And it's an apt description, especially for our passage this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 6, that, that mystifies sort of our our cozy and comfortable feeling of who God is as our sort of just best friend to the side right there, or maybe our life coach who helps us when we need a little bit of direction, or maybe the big man in the sky who when we have sort of a wish list of things that we need in our life or our family's life, we just want to call on him. Good he is, safe he isn't. Hear the word of the Lord in 2 Samuel chapter 6, starting in verse 5. We read in David, And all the house of Israel was celebrating before the Lord, with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this very day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark, Of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed Edom, the Gittite. Let's back up. 2 Samuel chapter 5 is where we left David last week. David comes to become the unified king of Israel. All 12 of the tribes of Israel are going to honor him and bow down to him. David's first weeks and first months in the office of king, the second king of Israel, has clear goals. One is he's going to go to war. He goes to war to, to two different clans, one, the Jebusites. He goes to war against the Jebusites because he needs a capital. He goes to war against the Jebusites because he conquers Jerusalem, and Jerusalem is going to become the capital of his kingdom. Secondly, he's got to deal with the Philistine problem. I know not every one of you have been walking with us throughout this 1st and 2nd Samuel series with David, but one of the things that you'll see, just a cursory read, is that the Philistines are the arch enemies here. They're the rivals here. They're constantly around every corner, they're constantly going to battle, they're constantly coming up against each other. And David says, We've got to solve the Philistine problem. He remembers. He remembers when, when his predecessor Saul, before Saul was in office, excuse me. He remembers 1 Samuel chapter four. He remembers how the Philistines came in and they raided and they defeated the Israelites, and 30,000 men died. And you know what happened there? In First Samuel chapter four, the Ark of the Covenant was taken captive. Now I say the Ark of the Covenant. We've got to sort of dust off our Old Testament background here. I say Ark of the Covenant, most people of a certain age are going to Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Probably the book of Exodus and the descriptions of the Ark of the Covenant aren't the first thing that come to our image and our mind or our mind there. So the Ark of the Covenant, in God's Word, was a box. Maybe it's a gold encased box made of acacia wood, but what the ark housed was, was really what was important. You've got two tablets of the Ten Commandments that go into the Ark of the Covenant. You've got Aaron's rod that goes into the Ark of the Covenant. And then you have some leftover manna from when God was providing them a buffet with with one menu item there. as food from the sky, manna, as they're in the wilderness coming out of Egyptian captivity. So the Ark of the Covenant is a reminder to the Israelites of God's revelation and God's reconciling work as he brought them as captives out of Egypt and he frees them and brings them into the promised land. Well, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, we've got a low point in the history of the Israelites. The Philistines take the ark captive. 30,000 of the Israelite men are dead. And so what is David doing? In 2 Samuel chapter 6, he says, I need 30,000 men. Not an accidental number. I need 30,000 men, and we're going to go get the Ark of the Covenant. I've got a new capital called Jerusalem, and we're going to bring back this symbolic, this symbolic box that is the presence of God, the reconciling work of God, the revelation of God. We're going to bring it back to Jerusalem because this is going to be at the heart of my kingdom here. And so you know what David's doing? He's pressing Reset. He's saying, I'm going I'm to reset what went wrong, and I'm going to start a new chapter for the Israelites. And as he does this, it is like a ticker tape parade. I mean, you can hear the music from 2 Samuel 6, starting in verse 5. you got the band playing. Any of you have ever seen a a college football team come back to the campus right there, and you line the campus, and and tens of thousands of people are celebrating. There's music. Anybody seen a World Series team come back to the city? Tens of thousands of people line the streets. There's music. There's joyous celebration, and the music comes to a screeching halt. oxen stumble. And Uzzah instinctively pulls out his hand to make sure that the the Ark of the Covenant doesn't fall off the cart that they're transporting it on back to Jerusalem. And instantly, he drops dead. Instantly, he is dead beside the Ark that has fallen. Now, some of you here say this is one of the reasons I can't read the Old Testament. This This is one of the reasons that when I read the Old Testament, I just say I don't know how to reconcile. I don't know how to reconcile a God revealed in Jesus in the New Testament with a God. In the words of Richard Dawkins, in the God delusion, he says that the God of the Old Testament is a malevolent, bully, unjust, and petty. And you look at a passage like this and you would say, he's owned to something. This isn't fair. And if you look at this passage and it causes you to pause, it causes you to wonder what exactly is going on here. If you feel a bit frustrated as you read 2 Samuel 6, you are in good company. You're in biblical company. You're in royal company. David is angry with God. That's what the text tells us right here. In verse 8, David is angry because the Lord has broken out against Uzzah. We all, like David, instinctively side with him. We think to ourselves, we would have done the same. We think to ourselves, poor, innocent guy here. But when we take a deeper look into this passage here, we realize Uzzah is not quite as innocent as we might have thought. And also as we look into our own heart, we're reminded that we're not quite as innocent as we might want to think. Verse 3 tells us that Uzzah is in charge of the transportation to get the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. So you know what they do? They did what the Philistines did. They get a cart and they get the Ark of the Covenant on the cart because the Philistines had done that and they realized this is a whole lot more convenient. This is a faster way to do it. It's a more convenient way to do it. It's an easier way to do it. But my friends, it was not God's way to do it. You you see, transporting the Ark of the Covenant was not a group project that God assigned to the Israelites and said, hey, you get into a room and throw some ideas on a whiteboard here, and whatever seems best, y'all go ahead and do it that way. No. God gives not only specifications of what goes in the ark, he could not only gives specifications of what goes around the ark, gold encased acacia wood here, he gives specifications of how to transport it. Two passages are really instructive to us. First, you'll see on the screen Exodus 25, verse 13 reads, You shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. Not a choose-your-own adventure. Nothing about a cart. Nothing about them gathering it and putting it in a bag and carrying it on. None of that right here at all. It's not a choose-your-own adventure. Why? Do they need poles to transport the ark? Well, again, God's not silent about this. Numbers chapter 4, verse 15. And when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuaries, the camp sets out. After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch The holy things. Why, you ask? Lest they die. God doesn't want anyone to die. He actually gives the specifications of how to transport the Ark of the Covenant so that no one would unintentionally touch this lest they die here. Now, the Philistines, they carried it after battle. They carried it on a card here because they didn't know any better. They didn't have the revelation of the Lord that was given to the Israelites like it was given to the Israelites here as a new better. And he's either ignoring God's word or he is intentionally disobeying God's word because he has found a faster way, an easier way, and a more convenient way. And if we are not tempted to, if we, we're sort of tempted right now in this moment here to, to miss the whole point of this passage. You see, our temptation is to say, how unfair of God. This well-meaning, innocent guy is trying to do a favor here, make sure it doesn't fall, and then he gets struck dead. But it, it misses that he's not innocent. And neither are you, and neither am I. He, he's a sinner. Who clearly disobeys God's commands. And unlike the Philistines, he's disobeying them or ignoring them, and he touched the ark. He touches the ark with his sinful hand. And what we see so memorably illustrated right here is that our sin and God's holiness can never be cozy roommates that reside together. Our sin and God's holiness— these are not cozy roommates here. Our God's holiness and radiance is so perfect and so pure that it actually consumes sinfulness. It, it is burned up in his presence. And it's not like we have just a little small speck of sin. Actually, a better analogy is for us to understand that we are soaked and we are saturated in our sin. We are a rag doll that is soaked in the flammable liquid of sin, and God is a holy raging fire. And the only way that we can stand before God, even in heaven, think about this. How can we stand before a holy God in heaven? Well, the only way that we can do that is that there is something more potent than our sin that is covering us from the holiness and the purity of a God that consumes sin with his presence. And so you ask, is there such a cover? Is there there anything that can wash away my sin? Is there anything that can cover my sin? And I'm really glad you asked. This is why we sing songs like this here at Dawson, that there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners that are plunged beneath the flood. They lose all their guilty stains. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as what, church? Snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Heaven is not terrifying for a follower of Jesus because we will be before the presence of perfect, radiant holiness. But we will be before him, covered in the blood of Jesus. And so we can stand in his presence, knowing that it is only his blood that has earned us a place. It is only his righteousness that has earned us a place before him in that moment. But that's not the end of the story. David's frustrated. David's mad in this moment. Verse 11, we pick up the story. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. For three months, David has been frustrated for three months. The Ark of the Covenant is with this gentleman by the name of Obed-Edom the Gittite. We don't know much about him, but what we do know about him, he's not a part of the Israelites. He most likely is a Philistine living in Gath where David was sojourning. So this is someone outside of the covenant people that receives and is able to house the Ark of the Covenant for three months. And you know what happens? His family is blessed. The same Ark that brings death brings blessing to this Gentile family here. And David sees this and says, I'm a bit jealous for that. So he decides to go back and get the Ark of the Covenant, bring it back into Jerusalem. So we've got the second worship service here. Now notice the difference between the first worship service and the second worship service. One is you don't see anything about a cart. You got poles here. So they're listening to the Word of God, obeying the Word of God and bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Secondly, you see that there is bloodshed, but it's not the bloodshed of Uzzah. It is the blood that is shed of these animals. So David, the king of Israel, is now acting not just as a king, but as a priest. He is a priestly king. And so the first six steps are steps where they're going to be the sacrificial offerings. And then at the very end in verse 17, again, there's burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. They finally make their way to Jerusalem. And what a joyful celebration it was. We read this starting in verse 16 as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window. And saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place. And we pick up the story in verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, this is his wife, David's wife. Notice how we see, not his wife, but the daughter of Saul. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today. Uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. This is not pillow talk between David and his wife here. And David said to Michael in verse 21, "'It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house.'" To appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. David is dancing, and not everyone's impressed. Uh, The word dance in the Hebrew language right here is a very unique word. It's a word that you can actually translate "whirl." It isn't that David breaks out into sort of like this Bollywood choreographed dance that comes from a musical. It's none of that here. He's not auditioning to... Impressed. He doesn't institute a dance troupe in, in the Israelite nation. None of that here. It, it is almost as if there's so much joy inside of the cup of his heart that it just overflows to his feet and it overflows to his hands and he can't help himself. The procession winds into Jerusalem and everyone sees David as the king. Uh, uh, in in this public manner, worshiping the Lord and dancing, and then in the balcony. Now, the 11 o'clock worship service, looking out from the window, is his wife. And she's not impressed. Actually, verse 16 tells us that she despised him in her heart. I want you to think about this for a second. This is David's first wife, the daughter of Saul, She has been through a lot. You know, it's easy for us. It's easy for us to kind of pile on Michael and and forget a little bit that, that she has lost her father, Saul. She's lost her brothers at this point. She has watched David marry several other women and have several other children with those women here. This is the second time that she's been married to David. Do you remember? She is married for the first time. And then Saul, her dad, pulls her away from David, marries her off to some other guy. David, when he's in a better position, pulls her away from that guy. You want to talk about life going through the ringer? She's had decades of the ringer here. And so, yeah, she's not impressed. David comes in, and he's dancing. David comes in, and he's worshiping. And she looks down from the window and says, Oh, yeah, look at how religious he is now. Yeah, who knows what she's feeling? But it's her words that make us pause for a moment. Because she doesn't really say anything about all that she's experienced, she says something about, well, you see it in verse 20, your dancing is vulgar and unbecoming of a king. What she's saying is, is I, I know what a king is supposed to do. My dad saw, he knew how to wear the crown, and here you are humiliating yourself. Here you are abasing yourself. Here you are before the female servants dancing. Who are you? I married a warrior. I married a king. And now you're, you're embarrassing yourself and you're embarrassing me. In David's words, he there's no words. There's sarcasm and there's irony and there's some anger in these words in verse 21 and verse 22. Look, God is finished with Saul and his house. He's finished with you. He's chosen me. But not because of my might, he chose me to put his glory on display, and that is just what I plan to do. Do you hear what David is saying here? David is willing to be humiliated if it means that he is exalting God, that the joyful worship of David is for an audience not of Michael, an audience not of the servants, an audience not of the citizens, but the audience that David is performing for is the audience of one, God himself. And and there is something. If If we can raise up out of the domestic squabble of a frustrated wife, a frustrated husband, we see that what we worship and how we worship, it says something. It says a whole lot. It might say everything about what and who we actually value in life. I hope you know this, that, that worship is not an elective for you. Now, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian in this sanctuary here this morning, whether you're entertaining the truth of Christianity, or you're skeptical of the truth of Christianity, worship is a core curriculum for all of us who are human. The late author, David Foster Wallace, and what is arguably one of the most famous commencement speeches in the last two decades in 2005 to the graduates of Kenyon College, he famously said these words here that in the day-to-day trenches of adult life there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice, the only choice that we get is what or who we worship. Now listen, what and who we worship isn't first and foremost displayed here on Sunday morning in this one-hour service. What and who we worship shows up in what we think, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, how we prioritize our hobbies and our allegiances. All of life is a worship service, and how we spend our life is ultimately displaying to ourselves, to this world, who and what we value the most. So we're always worshiping. The question is, are, are, are our objects, are our objects of our heart's affection, are they actually worthy of our worship? So it's not a question of will we worship or will we not worship? We're always worshiping. The question is, are these objects of our affection worthy of our adoration, worthy of our heart's affections? But here we are on Sunday morning, here we are in this sanctuary, and here we are every week gathering because we have a savior who's raised on Sunday morning. And so we pray together, we sing together, we listen, in, we listen to the word of God taught and preached in this moment. We, we celebrate communion together. We baptize together. And we do this as gathered believers in this place that called Dawson home. And so what we're doing is is we're putting our love for God and we're putting our hunger for God on display. And how we do that, well, that that changes, doesn't it? It changes based upon personalities. It changes based upon uh, when people were born. How someone worshiped in 500 AD in Rome is going to look very different than how someone worships in 2023 in Birmingham, Alabama. These are things that we know. The Bible doesn't prescribe one way of worship and only one physical way of worship. David is dancing in this moment, but we also know that throughout Scripture, we, we have the physical responses of people standing, stunned in silence. People bowing with words that cannot come forth, but tears that come flowing down their face. And yes, people stand and they lift their hands and they lift their voices in praise of a God who is worthy of our affection. What matters most isn't the outward posture. That changes. But what matters most is the inward attitude of our heart. David doesn't dance because someone cued him to dance. David doesn't dance because he's saying, how can I impress all these people that are going to be the citizens of my kingdom here? David dances because he could not help himself. It is a joy that overflows the container of his heart. And all of us in this sanctuary know what it's like. Every one of us in this sanctuary knows what it's like. Me, myself and I, first and foremost, to to come into a worship service with with a half-hearted, cavalier, disinterested, going through the motions manner. None of us are immune to this even those of us who lead in worship. And it is a temptation for all of us in those moments to say to ourselves, hey, you know something, if I could change this about the music, or if I could change this about the preaching, if I could change this about the setting, then, then, But what David reminds us of in this very moment here is that that in those moments, those moments of those half-hearted, cavalier, disinterested, going through the motions, checking off the box, it's in those moments that we're forgetting or we're ignoring who we are worshiping and we're forgetting and we're ignoring why we worship. We're ignoring or we're forgetting that the object of our worship is the holy, unchangeable, eternal, majestic God. And why we worship is because he loves us so much that he would send his only begotten son who lived a perfect life and died a sacrificial death, was raised on the third day, and the consuming holiness and perfection of God is covered, our sinfulness is covered by the blood of Jesus. David and Michael are at the same worship service. David and Michael are sitting in the same worship service, 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, and they have two opposite experiences. One, David, has this joyful overflow of his heart's affections, and one Michael is doing her best imitation of a Siskel and Ebert two thumbs down. Both were at the same worship service, but one missed the whole point because one missed God. And don't think that that's just a temptation In 2 Samuel chapter 6, that's a temptation, my friends, even this morning. Thank you for joining us today. To learn more about our family of faith or to learn how to become a follower of Jesus, please visit DawsonChurch.org. Until next time, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.